remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Um, as I think all of you are aware, we are in a series on the Gospel of Luke, and we have uh, approached uh, chapter 8, verse 22, and let me read that for you. One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he woke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you raised up faithful men to preserve the record of your words and your works for us, that we could be edified and built up in our faith through it, Lord. And and I pray that even though this is a familiar story to many of us, we would be encouraged and awe-inspired afresh at um, just this awesome display of your character and nature, Lord. And I pray for those who need encouragement, that they would be deeply encouraged by uh, the passage as we examine it today, and that they would understand that you are with them in the midst of no matter what circumstances they are going through, Lord. You have not abandoned or forgotten about them, Lord. Uh, Lord, I just pray that uh, you would almost as if supernaturally transport us to this scene and uh, that place of desperation that the disciples must have felt and find, as they found in that instance, that you are their sufficiency, you are their salvation, Lord, and, and that we too can trust you no matter uh, what circumstances we're going through, we can trust you for help, for deliverance, um, no matter how overwhelming those circumstances might be. And I pray that our faith would be built up in you, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Um, well, good evening. Uh, as many, most of you, I think, know, my name is Raymond. I have been blessed to be a community group Bible study leader for many years um, here at Shorebreak alongside of my good friend, friends David and Anna Shashikin. And uh, it's just a, always an honor to be here and to be entrusted with this weighty responsibility of handling the Word of God. But um, of course, it is a bittersweet occasion because our wonderful friends, the Alvaros, are uh, going to be leaving us soon. And um, of course, we know the good thing about Christianity is that it's never goodbye, it's just see you later. We will spend eternity with each other. Uh, it might not be this side of eternity that we get to see you again, but we will see you again. And I just want to thank you all for your um, hard work on behalf of the, the church. Actually, um, let me read a passage that I hope encourages you. And it's um, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, and um, verse... Can, and I think it applies to, to y'all. Um, and it says, uh, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and your love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness 
to have full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. I don't think there's much um, uh, potential of you guys being sluggish, but I think that second part was for the rest of us to be imitators of you. And I think you just have set such a wonderful example for the church, and I've learned so much from, from you all and your commitment just week in, week out, and to serve in whatever way the church needs. And you've impacted so many lives through counseling, through your friendship, and we are just going to severely miss you. And I just can only hope and pray that the Lord will raise up others who will fill the void, but um, that could be a call for, for all of us to step into that and knowing that we can't just kind of sit back and know that you guys are going to do all the wonderful things you've been doing, but we have to um, fill in those shoes. So again, thank you for setting such a wonderful example and um, yeah, giving us a very wonderful um, Christ-like uh, portrayal to, to imitate. Thank you so much for that. But um, yeah, as I uh, meditated on the passage for today, it reminded me a bit of a storm that took place about six months ago. It was December last year, and a massive storm swept across uh, the Hawaiian Islands, and that affected Kona as well. And it caused power outages, uh, downed uh, debris, tree branches, uh, road closures. Um, it was just quite a, quite a scene. Uh, almost seemed like a hurricane was hitting our islands, although it wasn't quite that severe. Um, but as I uh, walked home that night, I was walking, and I was uh, going along Kuakini Highway and almost pitch blackness. And I can't recall ever experiencing or um, witnessing a scene like that before. Usually when something like that happens, I'm just inside and I just wait for power to come back on or whatever. But I was walking home, very eerie scene. Uh, in the pitch blackness on Kuakini, and it took about 24 hours maybe for power to be restored along the roads there. But I can't, I can't imagine experiencing a storm like that while sitting in a boat surrounded by water. That's exactly what Jesus and his disciples experienced in our story today. Um, uh, it must have been a shocking experience for the disciples uh, even though the weather event that occurred in Kona was quite severe, it wasn't all that rare, I would say. Um, I've experienced um, events like that a few times in the nine years that I've lived here. Of course, we had Hurricane Lane in 2018 uh, that caused um, some flooding and power outages on some parts of the island. And there was a uh, very severe storm in 2015 as well that led to a lot of debris and even a capsized uh, ship that was on the front pages of the newspapers. But in the scene we're examining uh, today in Luke chapter 8, a storm of that intensity uh, would have been, and still is, extremely, extremely rare. And that's because the Sea of Galilee is actually a small lake. It measures 13 feet long by 7 feet wide, and it's 50,000 times smaller than the nearby Mediterranean Sea, which is an actual sea. Um, and it's also located 700 feet below sea level, uh, which makes it warmer and less prone to major storms. Um, it also sits on the northern edge of the Jordan Rift Valley, uh, which makes it uh, warmer, uh, makes for warmer weather, lack of rain, and lack of storms. Now, sometimes on rare occasions, cool uh, air from the Mediterranean can 
travel over to the sea of galilee and the combination of warm and cool air can make for some pretty uh, turbulent storms um, and there was actually such a storm last month uh, that caused a lot of damage um, to the adjacent communities of the sea of galilee and the estimated cost of the damage from that storm was in the tens of millions of dollars, could be as high as $50 million. But actually, prior to that storm in May 2022, there hadn't really been a storm of that um, severity since about 1992. And before that, there was one of similar severity in 1969. So as we look at uh, the events here in the first century, it's fair to assume that the disciples might have been thinking, you know, of all the days for a once-in-a-generation storm to take place, why did it have to be on the day that Jesus sent us on this random errand? And uh, we're going to see exactly why Jesus sent them on this trip uh, next week. Uh, but even though the errand might have seen, seemed unusual to the disciples, it wasn't random. Uh, and neither were the events that took place on the way to this uh, destination. God appointed this episode in the lives of the disciples to reveal something, I think, about the character and nature of Christ. Um, now, this event happened probably in the late 20s of the first century. Uh, we're not 100% sure, but it likely, I would say, took place about a year before Jesus' unjust execution. But whether or not we're talking about the last year of his life or at any point during the span of his ministry, uh, one might wonder, why was this particular event included in the Gospel of Luke? Is it merely because it involved a, a supernatural event? Um, I think that's not likely, considering that the Gospel of John says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not have, uh, could, could not contain the book that would be written. That's in John 21, 25. So why was this event included in particular? I think it's probably because it says so much doctrinally and theologically in an efficient way, not only regarding the person of Christ, but also regarding uh, the reality of human trials and what God is up to in the midst of our trials. Um, so let's uh, look at the passage, uh, starting in verse 22. It says, One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. I just want you to notice the fact that we're talking about this life-threatening storm that the disciples entered into, and Jesus sent them into this storm. Um, are we to believe that this uh, crisis arose as an unintended consequence of the mission that Jesus and his disciples were to go on? I don't think so. Uh, Jesus was in very close fellowship, obviously, with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And if God is omniscient, and he is, uh, he knew that this was coming. And he could have orchestrated the trip in such a way that it happened uh, well before this uh, storm on the Sea of Galilee or after it, or Jesus could have simply uh, calmed the storm before they uh, set out on their journey. And yet he sent them into the storm. 
And uh, I just feel like I end up hitting this point at least every other time I get to preach. Uh, and that's the topic of God's sovereignty. And the reason I, I want you to understand that uh, is because I want you to know that God is just not up in heaven um, watching things on earth play out the way we watch a movie unfold to see what's going to happen. And the reason I want you to know that is because life can be extremely frustrating and it could be extremely frightening, but it's a lot more frustrating and a lot more frightening if you think that God is just up there reacting to everything that happens and he has no say-so in the matter. Uh, I get frustrated and I get frightened at times. That's true. And no matter what, that's just the reality of human life. You're going to get frustrated and frightened. But whenever events occur that cause those reactions in me, I'm always able to uh, calm myself down uh, by reminding myself of the complementary truths, the twin truths that God is in control, number one, and he loves me, number two. And given the fact that uh, God is in control of everything, I also want to add a, a warning to you because there are some of us, at least, who are very prone to thinking that when we go through hardships and trials, it's, be it's automatically because God is displeased with us. Um, but as John Piper has written, and I quote, if God's love for his children is to be measured by our health, wealth, and comfort in this life, then God hated the Apostle Paul. I don't know if it's possible for any human to truly serve God wholeheartedly, but if anyone could, or if anyone ever did, it was the Apostle Paul, as Luke records in the book of Acts. And Paul never seemed to question whether the challenges and trials he was facing uh, were somehow an indication that he wasn't following God's will for his life. And if suffering were always an indicator of God's displeasure with his children, no one ever had a reason to be more concerned about God's um, uh, happiness with him than the Apostle Paul because of everything he suffered. Now look at what Paul wrote about the literal and figurative storms he had to endure uh, as he endeavored to spread the gospel. He says in first, uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians 11, 25 through 26, Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. And Paul was eager to please God. Yet God brought Paul through so much suffering. So you should never jump to the conclusion that any sort of trial or hardship you're going through is the result of God's displeasure with you unless God has raised your awareness of some sin in your life that you absolutely refuse to repent of. Otherwise, you might not find out why God has brought you into a storm, figuratively or literally, but you can trust that he will bring you through it, even if at the time you're going through that storm, it might feel as though he's absent. And um, I believe that the disciples were experiencing a perceived absence of God um, in this story in Luke 8. And I'm taking that from 
the Gospel of Mark's account of this very same event. Um, it says, and leaving the crowds, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And that's in Mark 4, 36. Um, and I believe that the phrase, just as he was, was sort of an allusion to Jesus' deity being veiled in his humanity. Uh, now, as Christians, um, it seems obvious to us that Jesus is God, but that wasn't necessarily the case uh, for four, first century Jews. And we have to remember we have the Gospels and we have the letters of Paul and the disciples to unpack the doctrine of the Trinity and the Incarnation. Uh, but it wasn't necessarily obvious to Jews in the first century. Even if you look at what I would think are obvious passages like Jeremiah 23 and Jeremiah 33, which point to the deity of the Messiah, uh, a lot of people might have been confused uh, by that equation with a, of a human with God. And I think a lot of people thought that this close connection between the Messiah, the human Messiah and God had to do with the Messiah's uh, close fellowship with God, close intimacy with God, partnership with God, even the fact that he walked righteously before God. Um, but I'm just simply saying uh, it might not have been that obvious to everyone. Even in our time, uh, we have uh, those such as Jewish political commentator, a conservative commentator, Ben Shapiro, who says that Judaism flat out does not teach that the Messiah will be God himself. And another Jewish uh, political commentator, and I'm a, actually a fan of both these people, but a man by the name many of you are familiar with, uh, Dennis Prager, says in a book about uh, Judaism, quote, to equate anyone with God as normative Christianity does is to Jews more than untenable. It is to compromise their ideal of monotheism. That's the idea that there's one God. And so, um, again, given the fact that I think possibly at this point they weren't fully aware or didn't have the full conviction that Jesus is God, that might explain why in verses or in verse 25 they ask, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him after Jesus calmed the storm? And this is in contrast to the second time that Jesus calmed the storm later on uh, when he met them by walking on water and he calmed the storm and entered the boat. And that time, uh, after he reached them, it says in Matthew 14.33 that, quote, those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So by that time, there was greater understanding. Um, even when they were trying to wake Jesus up from his sleep in Luke 8, um, it's not clear that they were doing so because they knew he had authority to calm the storm. It might be that they were waking him up to intercede for them uh, since he obviously had a unique relationship with God. That God was right in the boat with them. Not only was he with them physically, he was with them in terms of vulnerability. To me, the remarkable thing about the God of the Bible, which is to say the God of reality, uh, is that he doesn't ask us to do something that he hasn't done himself or suffered, suffer anything that he hasn't suffered himself. Uh, he's in, uh, sorry, in Christ, God has suffered in every way that humans suffer. But purely from a location standpoint, um, 
It might sound like a sentimental thing to say, uh, but I'll say it anyway because it's true. When you are going through hardship and trials in your life, suffering in your life, God is in the boat with you. In fact, he's even closer to you than he was to the disciples in this story because Jesus is actually in you. Uh, Now, even if the disciples um, had an inkling that Jesus uh, is God, uh, they might have feared that God wasn't paying attention to to them. Verses 23 and 24 say, Um, as, as they sailed, he fell asleep, and a windstorm came uh, came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Um, Even if the disciples had been convinced that Jesus is God, uh, they might have wondered, is a sleeping God paying any attention to uh, to them? Um, Now, when I was a child, I used to pray, and um, I used to actually wonder whether God was paying attention to me when I prayed, because I actually thought that I was competing with the prayers of millions of people. At that time, I didn't understand that there were billions of people in the world, but I thought that I was competing with all of the prayers being prayed around the world and that God only listened to the most godly and the most righteous people who prayed. And um, I would like to think that my theology is a little bit better now, um, but if I'm being honest, uh, sometimes I still feel like God isn't listening to me or paying attention to me. Um, I sometimes feel uh, that God has more important things occupying his attention than whatever it is that's troubling me. But I have enough scripture stored in my memory bank that I could always preach to myself and assure myself of the fact that God hasn't indeed lost track of me. And I just want to encourage all of us that if you're here today and you are confident about this reality of God's supervision of your life, just to preach that to other believers. Um, Every believer doesn't have the same level of understanding, the same level of conviction about that, uh, that you might, or that I do. And uh, to me at this point, that seems like an elementary reality, even though I sometimes uh, allow my faith to waver in that, but it's still an elementary reality. But it's not that way for everyone. We're all at different places in our faith. So we need to encourage each other in that. Uh, But even if you're aware that God has ordained difficult circumstances for you, and even if you're aware that he is with you in the midst of those circumstances, And even if you're aware that he's paying close attention to everything that's happening, you might still wonder if God cares about the practical effects of his decisions on your life and on your welfare. And that, to me, seems to be what's happening to the disciples in this instance. It's not in Luke's account of this uh, event, but in Mark's account, uh, it says that when the storm reached its fiercest point, they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? That's in Mark 4:38. And I think Jesus must have been quite uh, grieved by that question. Uh, Jesus left his comfort and his joy in the heavenly realm and came down and to earth, became a human being, 
just so that he could rescue perishing people. Of course, John 3.16 famously says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Uh, And the word perish here is from the Greek word apollomi, which is the same word for perish that's used in this story when they're asking, do you not care that we are perishing? And not only did Jesus um, demonstrate his concern for perishing humans just in the mere fact of his incarnation, but he had done so so many times elsewise leading up to this event in Luke chapter 8. He had already uh, healed Peter's mother-in-law from a severe fever in Luke chapter 4. And he had granted the disciples a miraculous catch of fish for their sustenance in Luke chapter 5. And he defended them against the slander of the Pharisees in Luke chapter 6 when they were accusing uh, the disciples of breaking God's Sabbath laws. And so he had done so much to show he cared for them. But it's so typical of human nature um, to question God's care for us based on the most recent circumstances rather than a holistic perspective. Uh, We seem to want God to prove again and again his love for us, uh, regardless of how many testimonies to that reality we already have. Um, And again, I even have to admit that in the past six months, I've gone through a little bit of an emotionally tumultuous time, and I have wondered at times, does God care about the sorrow that I've been experiencing? But I need to tell you something, and I'm really preaching to myself when I, when I say this. On the day of your life when you are the least lovable, God loves you more than all the other people in your life combined love you when you're your most lovable. Uh, when we start to question God's love for us, we really need to put on our spiritual armor and do battle. Because there's a battle taking place in our minds, and the battle is to get us to wrest control of our lives away from God and not to have faith in him uh, to sustain us um, in all aspects of our lives. And, of course, faith is what this story is calling us to. Uh, Again, look at the second half of verse 24 and into uh, verse 25. It says, and he awoke and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased. And there was a calm and he said to them, where is your faith? Uh, When I was thinking of this question or or this part of the passage and and the question, where is your faith? It kind of reminded me of all the times I've traveled uh, by air and experienced just crazy turbulence. And actually, I went on a mission trip to Brazil this year, and on one of the flights, we were flying different places around Brazil every couple of weeks, and on one of the flights, I experienced the absolute worst turbulence I've ever experienced in my life. But whenever I'm on a flight and experience turbulence, I could always draw so much comfort and so much peace by looking over at the flight attendant. And if they're calm, I'm calm because they've experienced most of them hundreds of flights throughout their lives. And uh, so if they're just all relaxed about what's happening, I know there's nothing to be uh, concerned about. And it's especially comforting when I look over and see the flight attendant asleep 
during crazy turbulence because then I know there's really um, nothing to be concerned about. Um, but I think uh, this is the kind of assurance Jesus wanted his disciples to have in this instance. Uh, he expected them to look to him for assurance even though he was sleeping. Um, and it definitely seems counterintuitive because they were in actual danger here because the boat was filling with water. But again, he had already demonstrated his willingness and his ability uh, to help his disciples again and again. And there wasn't any reason for them to think that he was going to abandon them here all of a sudden. And the assurance that the disciples should have had here is, is even so, so much greater than the assurance that I get when I look at flight attendants during turbulence. Because the fact of the matter is, if there is a problem on a flight with the plane, there's really nothing that the flight attendants could do about it at that point. If there's any engine trouble or an external threat to uh, the aircraft. Uh, but in the case of Jesus, the disciples were meant to be calm because the circumstance, they, they weren't meant to be calm because the circumstances were harmless, rather, uh, because the circumstances were actually threatening. They were meant to be calm because someone greater than the storm was with them in the boat. Uh, but again, it's possible that they didn't quite understand that. Now look again at the second half of verse 25. Um, it says that after Jesus calmed the storm, um, it says they were afraid and marveled and saying to one another, uh, who is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Um, and last place in my notes here. Technical difficulty. <laughs> okay. I was, it just goes by so fast. I'm like, this can't be <laughs> this far along in my notes. Um, so the answer to their question, who is this? Even the winds and the, the, the water obey him. The answer is he's God. Um, but I think... Uh, this story also helps us to answer another question, and that is, in what way was Jesus' deity on display during the era between his incarnation and his execution? Uh, because after all, we know that he chose to limit himself uh, as a human. He needed to eat and he needed to sleep, as we see in this story. He needed to be in one place at a time. He wasn't omnipresent as he was uh, uh, prior to the incarnation. And so how was his deity on display? Because he was and he is fully God and fully human. Um, and this provides one of the answers for that question, and that is the fact that even in his incarnation, he never relinquished his authority. Uh, he had authority to forgive sins. He had authority to heal the sick. And he had authority to calm storms uh, by the power of the Godhead. He had authority over the storm in this story and over the storms that arise in different crises in our lives. Um, and I would say God has and will continue to help us during times of trial and be encouraged in that.
that doesn't necessarily mean that in this phase of our eternal lives, everything, every circumstance will turn out all right. But it does mean that Jesus the Messiah will ultimately deliver us to eternal safety. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for the encouragement that comes from this passage. I thank you that you are with us in the midst of the most trying circumstances, the most seemingly impossible circumstances to be delivered from. And I thank you that we have the comfort that even, again, if things don't work out according to a temporary evaluation of our welfare, nothing can take away the eternal security and the destination of peace and safety that you have for us as we are found in Christ. And I just pray that we would have that confidence. We would not abandon our faith in you, Lord, but have the confidence in every circumstance that you are with us and seek you for guidance, seek you for help, seek us for hope in the midst of it, and trust your will and the things you are working in our lives, Lord. And uh, I pray that those of us who are going through crises right now would, again, be so encouraged by this text and call out to you, not in questioning if you care about their circumstances, but knowing that you do care. And um, I pray that in you they would find wisdom and strength to persevere, and in that perseverance to set an example for all all of those who are um, maybe not even in Christ or those who are infants in the faith. And through our examples of uh, endurance and trusting you in the midst of our circumstances, those um, who are still growing in their faith or even haven't come to faith can know that the supernatural peace that passes all understanding is indeed a reality of the Christian life and it can be found in you. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.